Welcome back to The Director's Cut, a podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Autumn DeWilde takes us behind the scenes of her new comedic drama, Emma. Adapted from the Jane Austen novel, the film tells the story of Emma Woodhouse, a well-meaning but selfish young woman who meddles in the relationships of her friends while venturing through her own romantic missteps in a small town in 1800s England. Emma is Ms. DeWilde's feature directorial debut. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Wilde spoke with director Mike Mills about filming Emma. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Mike. Hi. That's Hi. Autumn. I'm Autumn. Um, Autumn, congratulations on such an amazing film. I'm an old friend of Autumn's. So I'm like so proud and excited. And, <laughs> um, and what a freaking hard first film. What a ridiculous <laughs> challenge. Like, uh, so I know, I don't know if you all know Autumn's work, but um, I've known Autumn for years as a still photographer and a, like me, a music video and film, uh, music video and ad director and filmmaker of that stripe. And so when I heard you were doing this or I like saw the ad for it, I was like, gosh, that's Autumn? <laughs> And because um, Autumn comes from sort of famously Los Angeles bohemian roots and this sort of music rock and roll background. And then I started watching the movie. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so Autumn. <laughs> um, Autumn loves romance to me. Autumn loves men and women. But like the male body, she's photographed so many charismatic, handsome men and knows all about it. And I felt like <laughs> that was like shining through. And then Autumn's an amazing host, an amazing caretaker for like a community, amazing center for a lot of people. And I just kind of felt that all through the film and that kind of love of that kind of life and the, the production design, just the level of detail, just the food they're all eating, the pal that was going on, the, from the hair to the costumes to so what the camera was doing. It was like, it's like an autumn party of all these things that Autumn loves, you know? And I was like, fuck, Autumn should have been an aristocrat, you know? <laughs> she missed her, missed her thing. Um, so that's my ode to you. Um, my, my my real question was, you've done a lot of work, and I felt like I saw the vibe of that work all through the film, but it is your first film, and what a challenging period, orchestral first film. When did it feel like it was the first thing, and when did it feel like, oh, this is work I've been doing forever? Was there an interesting balance between those things? Yeah, um, I did, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm 49, in, and I think there were so... I didn't go to film school or college. Um, I did go to drama school at LACC, <laughs> um, uh, which was has been an essential... I mean, I really only went there because a really cute guy went there. <laughs> and I, I don't even think I prepared a monologue. I yeah. wasn't even good at improvising, you know, so somehow... <laughs> but... Um, but I, but, but I think because I, there was, I did so many random things. I studied ballet for 14 years. I did the drama school. And as you know, photographer, my father, 
I learned from my father um, how to shoot and stuff. So um, I think that over the years, all these different things that I learned um, by sticking my head in the fire, when I got to making the film, I did feel strangely prepared, even though it was a massive undertaking. I was, I was really, I knew I was embarking on like a giant film because of the budget and, and what I'd pitched and, and they agreed to it. Um, <laughs> but I suppose it was like, I, it would definitely, the marathon part was the hardest, you know, the, just, just, just how long it goes on and keeping it going. But we're, I, we, I did feel weirdly prepared, and I and I think because I didn't go to school, every commercial I did and every music video I did, um, and even every photo shoot, because I was much more of a storyteller, photographer, sort of as you know, like trying to make it, everything seem like a scene from a movie to make it more fun, even. But I think that that all of that um, really helped. Uh, the I just each time I was trying something I to prepare myself for something in case I made a movie. I've, I was in the back of my head thinking about that. Uh, I should use this camera or I, was like, I should try this style. And, and I was sort of slowly developing, uh, I think, one of the most important things that really prepared me for this was learning how to build the team that I needed to do the I kinds of ideas I had. And I think having years of trial and error I chose the right team by the time I got to that movie and that team didn't let me down and, and it took so many people to execute the ideas that I had and and I think I feel like that was that felt like a victory just when I looked out on at my crew and the cast and I was like okay the, the, these are the right people like whether I, this film succeeds or fails I picked the right people and that brought me a lot of um comfort along the way through through all the trials. Oh, that's really beautiful. I, I often feel such love for my crew by the end of a movie. It's like a you know it's like a film family. Yeah. Um and I can see you in that role. Like I said, I feel like you are such a center for people and you're very you know how to bring people out like that. I can imagine that. Um it does seem like a particularly challenging first movie period. <laughs> I just look at all those people's hair and like, how fucking long did they spend in a chair? And uh, all the yeah, production the curls. design. <laughs> we had a long meetings about the curls. There was a whole hair story for Emma. <laughs> it's like the curls are tight and, you know, she's like a little doll. And then as she starts becoming more human, like the curls are like, you know, in the middle during that card game, her curls are fucking like fuzzy. She's like, I can't take this anymore. Just get away from me. You know? <laughs> but that's okay. So curls, the curl bus, and then uh, just the depth of the production design and those locations, and like every single shot was really quite beautiful and masterful, and the, I thought all the blocking and your, your way of covering it was really, uh, you didn't take the easy route on anything I've, when I was watching it. How did you do that? Like, I, that seems like so, or, it's like so orchestral, and then you have like, I want to get to this later, but you have quite a tricky thing going on with the performances, with the tone of the performances. It's like quite a, like a narrow space of success, I feel like, that you, that you aim towards. But let's, let's save that one. Like, just the orchestral quality of this film, dealing with that many elements, and it's really quite a complex situation. I, like, how, how did you do that? <laughs> I, well, 
I had, I had, um, I always have used color rules to help keep everyone, like give my teams the freedom to create, but there are some borders, you know, and, and I sort of demanded at the beginning, not that anyone fought me on it, but I demanded that the production design costume and hair and makeup and, and then as soon as Chris Bavel, or my DAP, joined his team, that we come together from the very beginning um, and, uh, and share all of the plants. So we had long meetings with like swatches of wallpaper and something I started doing a long time ago is I started having the colors that we're planning to use, uh, having them not printed but painted onto, you know, bigger pieces so that uh, sometimes I send departments out if they're on a commercial, like, so that their shoppers have a better chance of success of connecting the colors correctly or playing opposites to it or clashing in an interesting way, you know. So we were doing that. We had these, like, big color swatches for the plants for each room because Emma's house is kind of like her dollhouse. Yeah. And then, and, uh, and then the costume department was hand dyeing like wools, silks, like all the materials that were gonna be in this fabric and see how that was changing. And it was, it felt like an insane, anyone on the outside watching our meeting probably thought we were all fucking insane. Because you know, it was just like, you know, but when you do silk, look at that, whoa, you know. And, <laughs> and because we had four seasons and, and we, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of clothing changes for Emma. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that in that chaos of the first initial pileup, we started creating a Bible of colors. Yeah. And I think each department, rather than being forced to go off, uh, come up with something, come back and get batted away by the other department, they, you know, it just stopped it from becoming a competitive atmosphere. Because what I told everyone is I just wanted, once the actor came on set, I wanted that to be like that perfect little puzzle piece that just fits in mm -hmm. and does the storytelling job it's supposed to rather than just showing off color or just showing off design or just showing off fashion. And, and I think that because that communication was opened early, it, it really did help everyone do their part of that job and I was conducting, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And also my, for my pitch, I had this box with all these images in it. And that sort of, that box became a Bible. It, it just when all the cards were spread out, it kind of, it gave a, like, an overview of what the movie might look like, and that, and each department sort of started the job looking at that, and it, we did keep bringing it out. It sort of kept harnessing the ideas, and, and we were really clear on what was historically, I feel like I'm giving you a long answer to this, because it's complicated. This is okay. what we're all here for, is your long answer, so that's good. I'm like a nut for research, and a nut for, um, costume history, I mean fashion history. So I was also telling them ahead of time so there wasn't all this wasted time. Yeah. I was like, go go with, if it's the fashion is weird, go with it. Because it is, that's what I love about that period. And a lot of films in this period, I think, soften that, like, oh, it's a little, she may not look as pretty in this. You know, the, I, a lot of stuff gets softened for whatever the fashions are of the time that movie gets made. Yeah. Except for a few movies that I really love. So 
I wanted the awkwardness of and the comedy of that. Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of had examples that were extreme because I also was really inspired by um, the caricatures from that time period. So I was looking at the drawings that were in the fashion magazines women were looking at. And then I was also looking at what the cartoonists were making, wh how they were making fun of fashion. So these were men that were like, look at what they're wearing. It's fucking insane. And they were drawing these amazing, you know, cartoons of it. And a lot of ideas came from that going in between the sort of romance and beauty of the fashion and the comedy and ridiculousness of the fashion. And I think it, just having those examples, just it was a lot of visual examples that I think really helped us yeah. keep circling around each other. Um, yeah, I guess, is that, did I sort no, of answer? super interesting. Um, how long was, like, that sounds like a lot of prep. Like, how, yeah. how much prep did you have? Well, there was this long, soft prep. I did sort of, a, my production designer, Cave Quinn, and I did, a, and the Helen, Helene, the location scout, we scouted for a long time before official prep because I, I, because I've always had bigger ideas on my budget, I have learned to look for locations that have at least a quarter, hopefully 50% of what we're going to do. And then I add to that. Yeah. This time I did have a really healthy budget, so I wanted it to look like an even bigger budget. So yeah. we were looking for houses that had, you know, one distinctive quality so it didn't become confusing to the audience. Oh, this is Emma's house and this is Mr. Knightley's house. Mm. So we wanted very visually distinctive. And then Emma's house, we had to be able to paint and wallpaper, which is unusual yeah. for a great old house in England. So we couldn't use a National Trust house. Yeah, wow. So that house let us make a lot of restore it to its Georgian colors wow. uh, instead of... Um, um, Contemporary version of it. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people think of things from 200 years ago as being faded and mm -hmm. kind of gentle patterns and stuff, mm -hmm. but we've just been looking at faded colors and faded wallpaper. Mm -hmm. So we were going into the Technicolor world that they were actually they were actually in, maybe with a little exaggeration on my part. Yeah, but not, not by a lot. That's so much work. Um, the... You just said something that I've picked up a lot on the film. It kind of, we were saying this before, it kind of like, it's not like a Jacques Demy film, but it's like edging that way or sort of edging almost towards becoming a musical in its, in its like formal precision of the filmmaking itself. And I feel like that's sort of a comment or a reflection or bouncing off of the manners of the time and the manners of sort of a Jane Austen world. Um, and it's, let's, in the, it's really beautifully done, I feel like, in the acting, but also just in that visual world that you were depicting, there's a really interesting balance between, I think, like, accuracy, I guess it would be called, and then also, um, it's like your voice, which has, like, a comedic slant to it, or a ruseful way, which is almost has, like, a slight, like, punkish aftertones, like, treating this world, treating this very staid world. Um, is that true to you? Like, I feel like there was, there was like, there's a gentle, odd comedy infused to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I think Jane Austen's really funny and it requires, it gets funnier the more information you have um, because the romance and the human uh, observation shines really loudly through and that translates 
no matter what time period you're in. But if you, the more you study the uh, the the manners and the um, class system and the sort of like daily life, and that's in a small town, you realize what a clever satirist she was. Yeah. And and I I'm a big fan of spaghetti westerns, and and I I always loved how they were they were so they were so kind of over the top, but the drama was high. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's like a weird kind of dark comedy to the style of like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and then I'm a big fan of screwball comedy, and so I, I was thinking I didn't want, and I had this amazing writer Eleanor Catton who wrote the Luminaries and. She, neither of us wanted to dumb down the language. So rather than trying to oversimplify, so perhaps like an American audience would understand, I, what my concept was to do physical comedy so that the audience is getting from the, the actors of passive aggressive behavior or the sort of exaggeration of their emotions. They're being told what the joke is in a different way. And the people who know the language can and everyone can enjoy the poetry. Mm-hmm. Like the, the poetry of the language is just beautiful to hear. And it's okay if you don't understand the meaning behind every single thing said. Mm-hmm. So I sort of like, there's some, a lot of, there's a lot of class system satire. So like, for instance, the tea scene with Mrs. Elton and Mr. Elton, her hair is a real hairstyle, that bow hair from that time period. So by putting it on her and no one else having hair like that, it, it tells the audience that she's nouveau riche, whether you understand her position in society, that she's kind of an upstart and she's just like, fuck you guys, I'm here and I'm rich. And then if you still don't get that with that, what that whole thing going on is Mr. Elton just fucking wants cake. And like, and, and you're, and then you're getting this joke, which is true about like how restrictive the, the, I mean, the cakes are there. Like we've all been to parties where like, it's so pretty and you're like, oh, I guess I'm not supposed to eat this. Right. So like, you know, and there's some girl that's like, oh, (laughs) wow, that's a big bite, you know? (laughs) And so I sort of was like, I was like, we can connect to those things, and then it takes us back in time as well. So there was a lot of multiple, like, base human issues. Like, people still, you know, people get hungry, and they get nosebleeds, and, you know, I was trying to humanize. And I think physical comedy does a great way. Like, I love bringing up Baby and, and, like, movies like that have, and, and, uh, and, and, yeah, and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is such a weirdly dramatic but exaggerated, comedic, yeah. colorful landscape. And Yeah, I think I, lo- I love that description. And, um, the, um, there was that picnic scene, too, where they're asking, what are your inner thoughts, right? Is that what the line yeah, was? Yeah. And the woman was like, well, what was her response? Like, well, no one has ever asked me that. Or, yeah, yeah. I felt like, obviously, that's such a accurate depiction of the mores of that period, but also very relevant now. Yeah, like, we've all been to parties where you're, it looks like it should be the best party in the world, and you're like, this fucking sucks, <laughs> you know? And my editor and I called that the doom section. And in yeah. fact, there was an argument I had uh, with my producer initially. One of my producers was like, the music's a bit depressed, like, shouldn't it? It needs to turn. Shouldn't it be kind of like more upbeat? And I was like, no, man, this, you've been to parties like this. <laughs> you like walk in and you're like, we're all f- 
fucked. This is, this is going to be bad. And I thought it was really important that everyone is just got their nose right above water and they're just trying to keep it all really pleasant. Um, because what I hoped for that scene, what was the, the whole movie I think is doesn't work unless that moment with Miss Bates, uh, um, Unless it kind of break, it doesn't. It has to break your heart, mm-hmm. and it's relatively a small thing, mm-hmm. but it needs to feel gigantic. Yeah, like yeah. in high school, when something like like uh, uh, Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie <laughs> told me once that he's like, I, I can't remember what I was so upset about in my twenties, but I remember every single fucking person that hurt my feelings in <laughs> high school, and I <laughs> and it needs to be one of those electric moments, and so. So we sort of set it up so you sort of know something bad's going to happen, I think, rather than trying to surprise them. And then it, it seemed to, what happens, it seems, because I have sort of gave the audience permission to laugh at Miss Bates the whole time. Is okay to have, make her the butt of the joke. That I'm, I hope that the audience falls into the trap and laughs with Emma and is then just as guilty as her yeah. and realizes the how how dark that moment is and... Yeah. Machiavellian. That's that. It uh, worked. I was I was in there. Um, um, the I feel like one of the things that really impressed me the most was I think we're talking about right now this paradoxical combination of like the physical comedy element you're talking about, also it's a slightly arch satirical air to like the performances, but then also very emotionally real, emotionally grounded. Um, uh, and spe- like Mrs. Bates and the, the, your your romance in there, it's like it's toggling antithetical poles, and that's really hard. And it kept it alive through the whole film. It kept the film sort of bubbling for me. And then, like you know, when they're together, I was very satisfied. And and like, or when she the, under the tree scene, and I was like, God, you know. Um, so that's quite an achievement to have like a film that's kind of in a satiric chemical bath to get you there. What I hoped would happen is that it would trick you. You Sort of like, especially with a story, you know, kind of, kind of know what's going to happen. And for me, when I see Romeo and Juliet, the most successful performances are when it gets to the poison scene and I'm like, please fucking wake up, you know? And I'm like, I know how it ends, you know? And so, so I, I, I kind of thought, I feel like comedy has always helped me to trick me into feeling, Yeah. you know, um, and the rule was with the actors is that, you know, to go big, but never, but sincerity was, you know, the sword we fall on. Like it's, yeah. it, it ha- because life is really weird. Like, I'll, I mean, you do this so well too. Like when you, you do these moments in your films that, are have some sort of ridiculous thing to romance, you know, or to a dramatic moment. And a lot of times I think when you remember everything that happened around like a very romantic moment, there's something fucking crazy that you couldn't, you know, I mean, life is so bizarre. So I just wanted to pack a lot of that in the movie, which is helps with, with that repressed sort of society and the rules were so, it was so, such a big deal to break a rule. Mm-hmm. Like I read that if you tripped or fell out of a carriage, your reputation was ruined forever. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's not stressful at all. Yeah. So yeah. I like that. It felt like it, every, it helped raise the stakes, the comedy. Yeah. 
did. Yeah. 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 And, um, and also it's like, when you really look at it, it's rich girl problems, you know, and, or it's like, oh, uh, so the drama in this is not as like, it doesn't seem in Emma on first glance, it's not as big a deal. But when you think about high school or being young or, and it's such a big deal, all these things. So it just, it has, you have to keep saying like they're trapped, they're trapped, they're trapped. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what was your process like with the actors? Um, so great. Cause I talked, we had a couple weeks rehearsal, which was uh, incredible. Um, and I had, um, I had an etiquette uh, person and a dialect person. And some of them had started sooner if their accents were, uh, you know, sort of the wrong class. Cause I, you know, when I said to the, like my, one of the actors that was South London, I was like, uh, there's a sensitivity, you know, to that, the, you know, the, 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 um, the way people are judged for the way they talk, yeah. you know? And I said, look, man, in order to poke fun at the middle class, which is like the, the upper class to us, um, you're going to have to go fully. Like, I know that there's all of you wants to resist this because you're from South London and like, why do they, why should I admit that they talk better or they don't, you know, that kind of thing. And so I talked to them each privately sort of, and just said, I need you to completely commit to the rules of the period. No sloppiness, no like, well, I I don't, I wouldn't do that kind of thing. And I said, because I think that if we all do this and there's no touching because you weren't really, there was no, no one really touched. They didn't pal around. They didn't touch each other's arm unless they were really um, family or in private or really intimate. And so I said, if we do that, I think that then the audience will feel the, the sexuality of the fingertips touching, you know, or they'll feel the power of a stolen look. Mm-hmm. And so that, and I, and I also talked to them. I said, there's going to be this, I'm going to choreograph it kind of like a ballet. And then we'll, so we'll start with that choreography. And there were a lot of visual um, metaphors for them. Like Emma's world is kind of like a clock. So the servants needlessly circle things, you know, like hardly anyone takes the straight line through things. And, and, but I was explaining to the actors, I said, but then when someone does beeline, it will be very effective because there's been all of this circling that perhaps the audience hasn't noticed. Wait, so all the blocking and movement around Emma is a circular A lot of circles. And you just, how'd you come up with that? I don't know. I just kept thinking about her as like the little ballerina in the music box or like those. I was standing outside Fortnum and Mason in London and, you know, there's a certain time of day when the, you know, you know, the little the clock clock opens and they come out. And I just thought, well, that's like what her the whole town is like for her. Did you have a metaphor like that for each main character? Well, that was that was a big one for everyone that they were all, they were all in this like that, clock where dance, it kind of happened where they all end up circling or inter intersecting and dancing with each other. Yeah. And I said, I said that the reason for that, I think then when like everyone starts becoming more and more fucked up with whatever they're going through, then the, it'll be like the gears, like the springs are popping out and it'll help the visualization of, of like Emma's kind of losing her mind and Knightley's having a panic attack, you know? And, and then with that, then I, with each each actor, like Johnny Flynn and I decided that Mr. Knightley gets panic attacks and that he's like, 
you know, just holding it in. And then that helped with his costume. And then so by the time he's ripping his clothes off, you yeah. know, because he didn't tell her he loved her, you know, yeah. and the time when she's, you know, all the, and like, as he goes up to the proposal, he's like clutching his chest, like, don't fail me now, body. Yeah. You know, so yeah. there's a lot of every actor we had a sort of private war with their body going on. Oh, that's so interesting. And that helped them too. It made the rules of, it gave them a reason to keep following the rules. What was Mia Goss? Metaphor. She, I think she, she so great in yeah, role. she decided that something was wrong with one of her feet. Oh, cool. <laughs> or that one of her shoes didn't fit properly because uh-huh. we also, in my research, I found that the women often made their own, almost always made their own shoes, wow. which is why they, they were, had to stay on the path. And oh, wow. there was a lot of the shoes would just come apart easily. So, um, when you said everyone's treading water sort of at the picnic, but she felt me like she's for treading sure. water, class water the whole time. I did tell, I talked to her about that, you know, who? because you know, Becky Stark from Lavender Diamond. Yeah. I had always felt that she's this, uh, this is band Lavender Diamond that we both know. I'd always felt that once you knew a, more about Becky's life, the, the hopeful songs had so much more meaning. Yeah, darkness. And darkness, because I, and that was my first image for Becky Stark was, oh my God, she's like, the water's up here, and she's like, peace and love, (laughs) you know? And and you go, oh my God, she's so heroic. She's not just glossing over things. And so I I did talk to Mia about that. I was like, what if Harriet's just like, you know, like just so sure she, you know, just with love and faith that are, that she's going to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to congratulate you on the gratuitous male nudity in the film. That was awesome and hot. And also Emma's, she's obviously the sort of the smartest power, maybe not the smartest, but at least as smart as anyone, probably smarter. She's and a, the, yeah. she's a power holder. And that was so... In, inside the context of this historical film, inside our culture, it was, it was, and it was like very subtly done, but it was like, obviously, that's the, the way that plane flies. This, the plane in this movie, she's the pilot. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, Emma is remarkably intelligent, and, and you can, in Jane Austen's writing of the arguments, it's obvious, because she often makes an incredibly good point when she is very at fault for something. And that's part of their biggest fight that nightly and her one of the big fights that they have he's just like I'm sorry he's so pissed off that she made an incredibly intelligent point but it's just glossed she's just glossed over you know uh her part in this like whole drama that she's created and I love that about their relationship that he catches her at that but he doesn't disagree with her intelligence um, and it's not a taming of the shrew story. He doesn't tame her. He just he just wants to remind her. He just is honest with her about the repercussions of her actions. And by making her remarkably intelligent, I was able to make her remarkably immature emotionally. Um, she'd never had a friend that wasn't paid to be her companion. So, of course... She's going to be incredibly stupid in her some of her decisions, and I love that like genius idiot combo. Mm-hmm. 
you know, very screwball comedy. Yeah, and uh, blindness. Yeah, and blindness is a big theme. A lot. Most of the characters in Jane Ott in this book have suffer from some kind of blindness mm-hmm. um, to what's going on, mm-hmm. to how they feel, or to like the secrets that get revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so um, this is the considered the first detective novel because it was the first novel to have a big big secrets at the end. And if you read it a second time, all of the clues are actually in plain sight, which mm-hmm. is an Agatha Christie based her style on Emma. Wow. Okay. So I, that was really important to me to leave all these clues and to have Emma, for us to see Emma fail in different ways, yeah. but not just from feminine wiles, you know. Yeah. And then the nudity... Um, and the central stalking thing that was so rad. Yeah. And this when he got, I don't know if it was a pan attack, but when he threw his clothes off and laying on the floor, I was like, <laughs> I just felt all of your photographing all this very charismatic rock and roll men through the yeah. years kind of like zing up through this movie. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, it's there. It's there because I felt like I had been watching women undress my whole life, which I don't think. I, I don't disagree with. I mean, I, I, it, often it is very revealing and, and makes helps create a vulnerable moment with a female character. When she took her stockings off, too, yeah. it, it wasn't sexualized, but it was a nice intimacy, uh, hire, hiring of the intimacy. Her not even noticing that her clothes are being taken off by someone was really important in that moment. Yeah. Um, she and and that was why at the beginning of the movie she's kind of watching her like a hawk, like not like that, like this, you know. And so her being completely blind and deaf to like even there being a person in the room yeah. showed that she was overwhelmed finally with emotion. But um, for Mr. Knightley, as far as fashion history, I was like, I said to my costume designer, I said, I don't even know what's underneath those clothes. (laughs) Like, I just, and then I had found out that they didn't wear underwear, men or women. And I was like, what? Like, all these movies, and I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it makes sense. There wasn't plumbing yet and stuff. And so, and men's shirts were their underwear. They were long like a dress and then twisted under their junk uh-huh. and then and that was their underwear uh-huh. and um and so I was like, I just, can you just show me? And so they showed me the whole dressing process. And I was like, I want to see that in a movie. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then the other thing was that, um, was that I realized when I saw what was underneath all those clothes that Emma and Knightley were dressed exactly the same. They both wore stor- stockings over their knees yeah. with garters and, and they both had these dresses under her, her under her corset and him, yeah. you know, was actually his shirt. I was like, that's also really interesting. All these masculine male, this is what a man is. And and in this time period, they were basically wearing the same things until the armor went on and his became man and hers became woman. And I thought that that was really interesting to me. Uh, I'm always curious. You have like one favorite moment. It could just be like when you got to go to the bathroom or something, but like from (laughs) shooting, is there one... For me, often when I go to the bathroom, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm alone. This is so great. Because um, you know, the whole crew is waiting for you to go to the bathroom. It's like, Fuck. And then when you're on your period, I just have to say it's like, Fuck. <laughs> Like the whole of crew knows I'm on my fucking period because I have to go 17 times. But, or is like, someday what? I'll just be able to say, I'm on the rag, guys, you know. <laughs> Um, or was there, is there a favorite moment or is there a time when you're shooting, they were like, I'm here or I got to do this or I don't know. Is there? Yeah. 
A lot. Almost every day. I think I was in love with my whole cast. I was in love with Mia. I was in love with Johnny. I was, you know, I was just like, oh, they're so. There was one at one day when all of them at different times like gave me this affectionate hug, you know, this, and I was like, Jesus Christ, I'm human, you guys. I can't like, it's so much handsomeness, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I was like, just get away. You're just too good looking. <laughs> but um, I think having their trust was huge. Yeah. I did. I have always. Anytime I hit that moment in a photo shoot when someone. Feels like they're like with me. I'm like, oh God, thank God, you yeah, know, because yeah. you just can't ever take that for granted. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the ball was my favorite because by then the actors were so trained to sort of create these. They all knew what their secrets were, the characters, and all of those like. Cre- secrets collide mm-hmm. and new misunderstandings are created and at the ball and so we had three cameras because it was we had to do it over two days and it was so much stuff to shoot mm-hmm. so I choreographed it like a play because mm-hmm. I was just like we just need to know where everyone's going mm-hmm. so the whole thing was choreographed like a play and then Chris and I started figuring out the different mm-hmm. ways to shoot all those different things that we needed to cover all these little little worlds that we created mm-hmm. and dramas. But then the actors started coming up to me like, okay, I snuck a look to Jane Fairfax and then she looked back at me, but when she looked back at me, I looked away and I was like, okay. And then I would report to, you know, camera and then like another actor would come up to me. And so they were, I felt like we, we became all a bunch of spies, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, well, I've just trained them to just report to me all their tiny little moves. And, yeah. and then we managed to capture it. I really felt like, it, there was a. I felt like we were on the brink of disaster at one point because there was so much to accomplish. Yeah. But because the actors were actually part of the team, they made it happen and fast. Sometimes we only had one take to like capture those things, and because of that, we had this library of looks yeah, wow. that the editor and I could could log in Boy. as we shifted the edit, which was a nightmare for that the ball scene. So yeah. 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 Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. you. (laughs) And thanks everyone for staying. Thanks for doing this, Mike. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can find past episodes of the Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 